Please be seated. Perhaps the most sinister and persistent lie of Satan is that it is sometimes necessary for us to reject the Word of God. This is precisely where Satan's career on earth got its start. God said that? No, no, no. You will not surely die. God counseled Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, but the satanic fantasy that prevails to this day is that there is sometimes a better way forward in life. A better way to advance your life. A better path to pleasure than obedience to God's counsel. Sometimes we face Satan's frontal attack. Tell that lie. Indulge that lust. Get even with that person. Break that commandment. But often the assault is far more subtle. We simply ignore what God says about some plan or some habit or some relationship. And commonly, when we are in this mode, the voice of God's counsel is drowned out by people who support and reassure us that all is well. And by the fact that things seem to be going just fine in our lives. So putting this together, if I'm doing what I want to do, and there's people who come along and say, you're doing the right thing, and God seems to be blessing my life, then why mess with the recipe? Why even investigate what God thinks? Let me just kind of hum loudly and keep heading in the direction that I want to go. Well, there is one reality our studies in the doctrine of providence make very clear to us you cannot ignore the counsel and purposes of God and think that God has nothing to do with your life to think that he will just go away if we don't think about him or consider his word we might think for instance of a quarterback on a football team who decides that he knows what off the offense should do and so while the plays are being signaled from the sideline he just ignores it doesn't look that direction, and gets together in the huddle and says, I think we should run this play. And all the team says, yeah, I think we should. And they get up to the line and they run the play and they get a first down. Does that mean that the coach will just exit the stadium and just say, well, things are going fine on their plan. I guess I'll just leave. I think we'd all recognize right away that quarterback's not long for that game. But that is sometimes how delusional we can be as Christians. We ignore God's Word, thinking in some way, though we may not think of it rationally, we think somehow that this removes God safely from the situation. We'll just run our own play, and that will mean that God exits the stadium, at least on this matter, until we pray and really need Him back in our life. In fact, that's not the case. It's delusional to think that God would act that way. In fact, as we come to understand the doctrine of divine providence, we 
will realize that God is sovereignly involved even in my ignoring His counsel. My ignoring of God's counsel may be nothing less than His active discipline upon my life. He hasn't left the stadium. He's very much involved. I may think I've left him in the dust, but he's actually using my delusional self-ordination as a means of discipline in his greater ordination of all that comes to pass. This was the tragic case with King Ahab of Israel. And we have for us a detail of this relationship in 1 Kings chapter 22. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 22. The final days of this godless king offer a rich study in the doctrine of divine providence as it continues to supply our series through this book or through this doctrine we come to this very crucial text the setting we find in the first four verses of this narrative first kings chapter 22 the first four verses read for three years syria and israel continued without war but in the third year jehoshaphat the king of judah came down to the king of israel And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. We need to take some time here and to consider the setting first of all the military situation first kings 22 brings us to about 80 years after the death of solomon and the division of david's kingdom after years of civil war between the north and the south between the the kingdom of israel to the north and the kingdom of judah to the south israel is led by king ahab judah now by king jehoshaphat In fact, Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, is married to to Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, and so now there is peace after long civil war. Approximately three years earlier, Ahab, centered there in Samaria, as you see here on the map, defeated the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, and his 33-king alliance. Now the whole thing had started quite differently. Ben-Hadad demanded tribute from Ahab. Thus says Ben-Hadad, according to chapter 20, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Well, Ahab was so intimidated, he agreed to pay the tribute. He said, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Now put that together. The Syrian king comes in, unprovoked and says i'm going to take riches from your kingdom in fact that's where he then moves perhaps seeing how easily ahab yields to him ben hadad says i'm not going to allow you to bring the tribute to me i'm going to send my army into samaria and i'm going to take the tribute from you i'll figure out who i determine are the best children and the best wives and i'll figure out how much gold and silver you really have While conferring with his war council, King Ahab refused to permit this. He insults Ben-Hadad in the process, and Ben-Hadad 
takes that as fighting words and comes down south into Israel, invading the land. Now think of how Ahab responded initially. I'll send you tribute. He does not want a fight. He is greatly outnumbered. But a prophet visits Ahab, the king, and assures him that he is going to actually defeat Ben-Hadad. Let's look back at that at chapter 20 and verse 13. Chapter 20, verse 13, This prophet came near to Ahab the king and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? What do you think Ahab's thinking? Yes, I have, and I'm scared to death of them. Behold, I give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And I, Ahab, said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232, and after them he mustered all the people of Israel, seven thousand small army now if you're a prophet in israel what could be more exciting than assuring an oppressed and discouraged king that he will win a great battle that's a message you want to deliver the prophet was the this prophet had to be the envy of all of his fellow prophets and as prophesied israel in fact defeats syria Now, hypothetically speaking, that would have been the end of it, but Ben-Hadad did a really, really stupid thing at this point. He concludes that the God of Israel is a God of the hills. And if we will just fight Him on the plains, we will defeat Him there. Well, that was a really foolish thing to think. Because now He has God against Him directly. And God will not allow this to pass. And so, in the spring of the year, Ben-Hadad fights again against Ahab, and this time 100,000 foot soldiers are destroyed in the battle. 100,000 of Syrian soldiers. 27,000 more die when a wall of a city mysteriously falls on them. It is a crushing blow. Unprecedented. Put yourself in Ahab's position here militarily. Things are going very, very well. You have an alliance with the king to the south, and you have just crushed the Syrian kingdom against all expectations. But there's one thing that's still bugging you here now three years later, and that is that Ben-Hadad possesses the walled city of Ramoth-Gilead, which you see here on the map on the east side of Jordan. It straddles the king's highway, so it is controlling commerce in this area north to south and also east to west. Not only that, it opens onto this Jezreel Valley, which allows you into the heart of Samaria and would allow an army to have a controlling, commanding position there. And he's saying, now wait a minute, didn't I beat Ben-Hadad? Why does he continue to control Ramoth-Gilead? Well, the king of Judah... visits the king of Samaria, Jehoshaphat coming down off of the higher elevations to Samaria, and Ahab says, will you join me? 
Let's go to Ramoth-Gilead. Let's unite our armies. And what does Jehoshaphat say? I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Let's join together in an alliance and go against this Syrian king. Now one other thing we need to superimpose over this military situation, and that is the moral situation. Ahab is a very wicked man. Chapter 21 and verse 25, in fact, says this, There was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Now that's saying something. No one, not even Jeroboam, who set up this false worship that rivaled the worship at Jerusalem. No one had done worse than Ahab. God has prophesied, indeed, that Ahab's judgment is going to come. He's prophesied this twice already. And we enter here in this chapter now upon the third warning. Simply put, Ahab hated God's word. And we see him ignore it here one final time. But as we read this text, we will witness that God is not absent from the ordering of Ahab's life. Here is a wicked man who wants nothing to do with the word of God, and we note God's involvement. As we enter on to verse 5, then, having set the situation up in the first four verses, we now look at God's word providentially ignored. And I stress the word providentially. God is in this, but we see this king ignoring the word of God. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Let's screech on the brakes here for a minute. What? He just said, My army is your army. After he agrees, as some have noted, to join with Ahab, now he says, let's find out what God thinks. So with this diplomatic flair, he commits his entire army and now checks with God. Verse 6, we find what happens. The king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, think of the history, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Oh, they've been waiting for this day. Remember that prophet who had said, you'll crush Syria? Well, they know this routine. They've been waiting for this. These, as one calls it, court flatterers. Like the man who prophesied the defeat of Syria, they're lined up for a piece of the action. Go up and beat the king of Syria. Jehoshaphat doesn't like the situation. Verse 7, he says, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? You see, these prophets claim to be prophets of the Lord. They spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 6, verse 11, verse 12. They are likely prophets of the syncretistic religion established by Jeroboam, who broke free from Judah. That is, they are worshiping Yahweh, they are worshiping God and bulls. They have the syncretistic worship, but they see themselves as prophets of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, who is a faithful man in many respects, says there's something wrong here. Is there not a prophet of the Lord, a true prophet of the Lord? I'm committing my army here. I'm committing my life here to this battle. I'd really like to know what God believes. Verse 8. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. 
Micaiah the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. That is, Ahab burns with honesty, and Jehoshaphat tries to douse the flame with reason. Now, it's, it's not all that bad, Ahab, is it? Well, yes, it was. Ahab believed Micaiah was not fair because he was always against him. Ahab should have been asking why Micaiah was always against him. In truth, Micaiah was always against Ahab because Ahab was always against God. Micaiah knew God's truth could not be compromised. What does Ahab believe? He believes truth is relative to one's purposes and that Micaiah should tell the king what he wants to hear. There is one man. I brought you 400 prophets of the Lord. There's one left. But I don't like what he says. Then the king of Israel summoned, verse 9, summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Well, he runs off to fetch Micaiah. And who is he going to fetch? He's going to fetch a man who will tell the truth of God. Sometimes such people are irritants. Ahab hates the man. But we need to learn to be thankful for the people that God places in our life who tell us the truth. Who tell us the truth of God. Who, seek, who speak for God and seek to know His will. And if we find ourselves constantly at odds with such voices, we should not consider so much how this person offends me. We should consider, does this person have the mind of God? Micaiah has that mind, and as he's traveling here, we see that Ahab has surrounded himself with other kinds of prophets. We've seen that already, but now they break into action while we're waiting for Micaiah to arrive. Verse 10, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Note that they're sitting on their thrones. Just keep that in view. Dressed in their royal regalia, leading this war council, they're seated on thrones. And Zedekiah, verse 11, comes forward, the son of Cheniah. He made for himself horns of iron. And he said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. These horns were a symbol of royal power. And Zedekiah, he's not crazy. He's just illustrating the prophecy as many of the prophets did. Today we just wear t-shirts. That send our message, but he has these horns, and he says, You're going to gore the Syrians to death. All the prophets are agreeing with him. They wax eloquent in telling Ahab all that he wants to hear. Now we go back to the scene of the messenger, verse 13, who is fetching Micaiah. He went to summon Micaiah and said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. 
Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. You see what he's saying. Micaiah has a reputation. So the messenger pleads with him, please, could we have peace at court? Please, join the crowd, Micaiah. Tell the king what he wants to hear. All the other prophets are doing so. They all agree together on what God thinks. Like his master, just like his master, this messenger assumes that prophets speak their own mind. They do not communicate God's objective, external, unchanging word. Well, Micaiah sets the man straight. Verse 14, he says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. It's not negotiable. God's word cannot be adjusted. I will say what God says. Whether it is a war council, a denominational meeting, or the decision of an individual believer, it is we who must adjust to God's word, not God's word that must adjust to us. We are not free to ignore certain things that God has said. We're not free to see the body of God's revealed truth and to apply it how we choose. Micaiah sees this, and I wonder if we understand this. Do you know the spiritual discipline of conforming your attitudes and your actions and your goals to the Word of God? Not I go with my reason, with my feelings, how I believe things ought to work, and then I see what God's Word says, but rather conforming to what God's objective external standard declares. This is where Micaiah is, and he's in the minority. And so are his people to this day. Verse 15, And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? We don't have time to think of it, but think of the tension that's here for Micaiah. He's been told exactly what has been taking place here before the king. But he answers then, in light of that truth, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. The threshing floor falls silent as he speaks, perhaps. As much as no one intended to listen to God, they realize that this man does deliver the word of God. And he delivers that word here, probably with deadpan of some sort or sarcasm of some sort. Maybe he just says, without any emotion at all. Go up to Ramoth-Gilead. Or maybe it's with sarcasm. Go ahead, go on up to Ramoth-Gilead. I don't know, but somehow the king knows this is not the true message. And so he says, verse 16, to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? In other words, Micaiah has realized this man has no intention to ever listen to the Word of God. It really doesn't matter what you say. He won't listen anyway. So whether it's with sarcasm or in some way the king uh, determines, as maybe as he looks at his face or reads his words, this man's not telling me the truth. Okay, King Ahab, you don't want the truth. But here it is. Verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. 
as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Ahab, you're a dead man. That's what God said. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, you see them there on their thrones, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? You see, the man hates me. This is, this, is the, this is not the truth. This is just prejudice speaking. We all agree it's time to go to Ramoth-Gilead and to defeat the Syrians yet again. I think we have a key component here of our understanding of providence. Ahab wants nothing to do with what God thinks, but as Micaiah defends the honor of God's word, we learn that God himself is involved in Ahab's rebellion. God is involved in this man's rejection of God's word. And that comes out very clearly here in verse 19. As Micaiah continues, he has been challenged now that he's not telling the truth. He says this, verse 19, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside Him on His right hand and on His left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Micaiah now reports, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Do you like this passage? Does it work for you? Does this work for your theology? Is this how we like to see God? We have to. What does God have to do with Ahab's temptation? What does the text say? God is not the source of the temptation in the sense that He does not Himself tempt Ahab to sin. There is no sin in God. However, let's come to terms with the text. God reigns with such sovereign ordination over these affairs that Micaiah rightly and boldly says this, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Did you notice in verse 20, in fact it says that there were various schemes that were suggested by these demonic hosts. God weighs those schemes and refuses to grant permission. Why does God put a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets? Why does God, to say it another way, release this demon to do what he wants to do to tempt Ahab to listen to a lie? The reason is because God is going to judge Ahab and says this is how it will happen. God permits the demonic realm freedom to tempt Ahab to believe a lie because this is the end for Ahab. 
So as you look at it from the outside, as you look at it from the, from the angle of the false prophets, let's say, God is blessing Ahab. With a far inferior army, he has crushed the Syrian army to take Ramoth-Gilead. That's no big deal. Everything's going Ahab's way. It must mean that God is on his side. And all that it meant was God was about to judge him. I know this isn't precisely how it works, but it's almost like God just got delayed because he had to deal with the king of Syria first when he said that God can't fight battles on the plain. But now it's Ahab's turn. Of course, according to God's plan. As Proverbs 19 puts it that we've read often, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. God is not blessing Ahab. God is about to judge him. Unless we feel sorry for Ahab, let us remember that this is a wicked man and that Micaiah is giving him every warning. There's been a previous warning that to which Ahab responds. He will not respond this time. He doesn't want to. So Micaiah has again stood against the false prophets and one of them now speaks to their wounded pride. Verse 24, Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? That is, you know so much about the spirit realm. Who did the Spirit by which I speak the truth? Why did that Spirit become now a lying spirit in your mouth, Micaiah? And Micaiah said, verse 25, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. A room in a room, somewhere, we don't know exactly what this looked like, but somewhere this man would realize. Micaiah was the true prophet. Probably the cleansing of Ahab and his family his dynasty this man cowered in a corner cowered in a closet in a room or something of the like and knew that Micaiah was the true prophet you will find yourself there remember this day on that day verse 26 and the king of Israel said seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon the governor of the city and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Hear, all you peoples. Bear witness to what I have said. It's an interesting thing that takes place here. The ultimate test of the true prophet is not pedigree. It's not bravado. It's not the level of conviction with which he speaks. It's not charisma. The test is simply, does his word come true? Actually, the test is a negative one, as Deuteronomy 18 reminds us, a false prophet's word may come true or appear to come true. But if what a prophet says does not come true, that exposes him as a fraud. He does not speak for God. He doesn't have a prophetic batting average. 
He gets it right every time because he's hearing from the God who controls the universe and is steering history. He never, never gets it wrong. That is, the true prophet knows the true God who reigns with sovereign authority over all that comes to pass, ordaining all that comes to pass. Such a prophet is always right. You watch. I'm not going to argue with you at who's right militarily. I'm not going to argue with you right here about what I saw. I've given you the vision. We will see who's right as history plays out. So we've looked at God's Word providentially ignored. There's no desire for it in Ahab's court. We look at verse 29 then at God's Word providentially fulfilled. And again, I stress the word providentially. Notice how the fulfillment takes place. Verse 29, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria, providentially, had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. Syria had some stuff cooking up to the north, and they didn't want to lose their army, and they're concerned about the situation. They just want to kill the king. Think of that strategy. That's not always the strategy. That's the strategy here. Who's wearing the robes? Jehoshaphat has a target on his back, and he doesn't know it. He's the only guy the army's trying to really kill. Ahab, for reasons unstated, disguises himself and would, is as safe as any other soldier on that battlefield. He's in the safest position as a grunt out there among the other soldiers. Jehoshaphat is in the very worst position because of the Syrian king's strategy, which they know nothing about. Everything set against Jehoshaphat. Verse 32, And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. He's over here, guys. This is it. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Why? Simply because of the command of the Syrian king. Jehoshaphat's cry here apparently alerted them to the fact that I'm not Ahab. So he's in very bad shape. He's been pinned in a corner and would easily be killed, but because of the Syrian king's command, Jehoshaphat is spared. Next point, we come back to Ahab. But, verse 34, but a certain man drew his bow at random. Literally, in his innocence. And struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went out throughout the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. He aimed his arrow 
but he had no idea who he was shooting at. He just let it fly. I, I don't know that the meaning of the Hebrew is that he just shot the arrow into the air, but he's just randomly shooting at anyone. He has no idea that he's aiming actually at the king of Israel. And in the providence of God, that arrow found its way in a little crack between the breastplate and the male skirt that hung by hinged joints over the abdomen and thighs. So this skirt of mail hanging of, of, of metal hanging down to protect the lower body of the king, there's little joints that connect those two pieces. And in that little slit, this arrow finds its way and pierces into the body of the king, fatally wounding him. You've done something like this somewhere, thrown something at a trash can or dropped something and caught it or something, and you've said, we couldn't do that if we tried. That's exactly what takes place here. This archer could not do that again if he tried. But it finds its way, this arrow, into this little opening in the armor. So here is Jehoshaphat with a target on his back, dressed in his robes, and he gets away. Here is Ahab, as safe as any soldier on that field. And he dies. Micaiah's prophecy is fulfilled Israel is scattered as sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. The prostitutes, an interesting reference here. They're probably cult priestesses of the pagan worship that Ahab had introduced through his wife Jezebel to Israel. They're called here prostitutes rather than priestesses because that's what they actually were. The pool was undoubtedly a part of their ritual baths. We don't know if it's that the blood being from the chariot being washed off went down into the pool where they were washing, or some have thought that probably superstitiously they smear themselves with the blood of the king before washing off. Some type of fertility suspicion, or superstition rather. But with the dogs licking up his blood, there is a prophecy that is fulfilled here, and it is a scene of utter degradation. Ahab, by being propped up in his chariot, apparently was showing great bravery. But he's gone. And he dies a horrifying death. Now, the historian says this in verse 39, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Ahab slept with his fathers, and Hahaziah his son reigned in his place. You know, Ahab would really like for the footnote to be the body, and for the body of the text to be the footnote. He was a great man. He was a great and courageous warrior. All that he did, the historian writes, this famous, powerful warrior. All the cities that he built up. His ivory palace has been excavated. The interior walls were inlaid with ivory. All of the furniture was inlaid with ivory. It was indeed an ivory palace. He was rich. 
He was famous. He was courageous. He was powerful. He was effective. All a footnote. In the eyes of the world, apart from his final destiny with an arrow, Ahab was a very successful king. All that matters, though, to the biblical historian is that he opposed God and that in the end, God opposed him. And at the end of the day, that is all that is going to matter for any of us. Our life task is to conform to the wisdom and the Word of God. There's going to be troubles and trials all along the way. There will be successes by God's grace. But a life conformed to the reality of what God has revealed in His Word is the only way forward. The only way. Our fantasies based on Satan's temptations will fail. They'll be buried with us. Indeed, our successes, many of them will be nothing more than a footnote. But God's Word will prevail. It cannot fail. Because He alone reigns as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The Bible is the revelation. The Bible is the revelation of the mind that rules everything. The mind of God who reigns over the flight path of a random arrow and over the destinies of human beings. The God who steers the ship of the universe. This is His Word. This is His counsel. We must come to understand that God's Word is not only trustworthy then, it is the hinge on which history turns. God does not reveal everything to us about what is going to happen in our lives, but He lets us know the basic trajectory of history. And to bring ourselves into conformity with that trajectory is a gift, is His grace, and is the only path of wisdom. Listen to the trajectory. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's where it's headed. That's where it ends up. That is the word of the, God, of the Lord, and it will take place. It means that if you're here today apart from Jesus Christ, you have not come to a place of saving faith in Him. You have not become a follower of Jesus who has repented of your sin and turned to embrace Him as Lord and Savior. Today is a day to turn. It's a day to heed the Word of God. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, it is the same. A day to repent. A day to synchronize our lives with Scripture. Where is your life out of line with what God's Word says? With the promises that He's laid out? Are you walking in synchronization, in fellowship with the direction that God is leading this universe? Listen, ignoring God's Word will not mean that he goes away. In fact, as we ignore God's word in our sin, it may itself be his discipline against us. So often our discipline is the foolish choices, the plans that we make on our own. But again, if you come here without Christ today, 
you recognize the message here. Ahab was a successful man. But in the end, his rejection of God's word led God to call him out of the game in judgment. There is such a future for everyone who rejects the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. There is a future meeting with the judge of the universe for every one of us. And on that day, who you are and what you have accomplished in this life as other people see it will mean nothing. What will matter is if you come on the authority of God's Word with the forgiveness of sin. What will matter is whether or not you have listened to His Word. As Jesus said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Ignoring that Word will not end well. And it does not mean that God is just letting you run your life how you choose and that He doesn't care embracing His Word by trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ is our only hope. God's Word promises that. And the God of providence will fulfill it. Let's bow before His throne. Father, on His throne, Ahab, we see, devised nothing but folly. On Your throne, there is nothing devised but wisdom and nothing devised that will not happen precisely as You ordain it. From the smallest sin to the flight of an arrow to the great movements of armies and nations, You are sovereign God. We bow before You. We worship You in Your might, in Your wonder, and in Your strength. In Your wisdom. And we realize, Father, how foolish and how often how foolish we are. How often we run from Your Word. Father, forgive us. Bring to saving faith today, we ask, anyone whose eyes You would be pleased to open to the grace of Christ. But teach us, Father, to trust in Your providential reign over all things and not to take false comfort in the words of a watching world or in favorable circumstances. But I pray that by faith we would give ourselves to live for Your glory and for Your honor and to heed Your living Word. Through Christ, the living word, we pray. Amen.